Magic Beans episode three. Sam Park and John Ramey with you. Sam, we'll get to the important stuff, the serious stuff first, but I wanted to start on a lighter note. And this is why this is not a U.S. politics podcast, because it would just devolve into absurdity right away. Did you see the news about Sean Spicer? No. <laughs> he wished everybody a happy D-Day today as we tape this on December 7th. Oh my God. <laughs> That's actually great. I, you know, I would, uh... Sam, as we all know, the greatest invasions of Europe all start on the brink of winter. <laughs> that's that's just great. I, I know. I I've been actually... waiting. You had you were taking a little time to log in, and I was like, "Oh, I got to tell Sam this." I I uh, well, did you hear the other one that that uh, apparently Trump still has classified documents? Oh, that's great. That broke a couple minutes ago. I haven't. Uh... Uh, uh, heard a lot of the details about that. And of course, uh, German law enforcement authorities have uh, broken up a coup attempt. Oh, I did uh, see. Yes. Yes. The far no, right. I haven't heard a lot about that. I'll, I'll uh, you know, some can... prince or somebody related to the German, former German or some. Apparently you know, as a provincial member of, prince. The, of the old time German nobility. Yeah. Yes. I don't know. I, we'll, we'll hear. I think this is probably going to fall through the cracks for us. Sure. By this time next week, I don't think this is going to be a big story anymore. But, but it was I, like I, 25 I, people arrested. Some hard right yeah. German loons wanted to have their own uh, January 6th. They were going to storm the Reichstag or something. That right? apparently was the idea. Yeah. And uh, this they, they were arrested in 11 German states. I don't really remember exactly how many German states there are, but there aren't many more than 11. Uh, and uh, uh, I think in one or two foreign countries also. But that again, I don't know very much about this story so far. So We'll see what develops. I mean, I guess it could end up being a big story, but since they didn't actually st storm the Reichstag, it, it it can't really be as big a story as January sixth. Hey, the beer hall putsch failed too. Correct. You know, but you know, I, I don't know how much coverage that got at the time either. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, from the silly to the slightly gossipy, but um, it does touch on foreign affairs. Uh, did you read the Times, the New York Times article about the toast between Macron and Dr. Biden during the state dinner that uh, President Biden? I did not held? hear about that. No. So apparently, and these are unnamed sources, but they are leaking this to the New York Times. This story published last night, I believe. Um, Dr. Jill Biden toasted with President Macron of France. Um to the 2024 campaign. Now, this is not shocking that Biden's going to run again, but this is like the most official kind of reporting that has been done that has indicated that Jill Biden has signed off on a re-election campaign. Right. And that, that was ostensibly one of the the, the hurdles the people who needed to sign off. Yeah. Right? So President Macron and Dr. Biden toasted to the 2024 presidential campaign and uh okay the, but who proposed the toast macron okay yeah uh it's in the new york times so this is not you know not not saying okay that, but if he therefore it's true it. i'm just saying like that all the details are in there it's it's total political gossip 
Okay, but if he proposed it, that doesn't mean that Jill Biden signed off. No, I think Jill Biden was saying, yes, we're going to do it. And I think Macron then turned to Biden and said, I suppose a toast is an order. Okay, well, I'll that. fight. I, I mean, again, he could change his mind at any time, right? Of course you don't, he could. You don't, he could also could, die at any time. Right, sadly. I mean, there, or just have a serious medical episode right. that would say, okay, I can't. He do. is 80. Yeah, um, uh, the, but the I other, think we have to imagine that he's going to run again today. Yes, I would agree. Uh, the other funny part of that is, of course, Macron toasted with wine and Biden doesn't drink. So he toasted with Coca-Cola. <laughs> wow. I mean, I would figure the wine list is pretty good at a state dinner. So that makes me sad. Although we have plenty of good wine here. you know. No, no, that's what I mean. Like, I bet there's good wine at a state dinner. They might have even had, you know, Californian wine for the French. Who knows? Anyway, well, there like, better be. I mean, God uh, bless President Biden. I suppose it's good he doesn't drink. It means he'll live longer. Yes, that's right. Yeah. All right. That's all the nonsense I have now. Uh, I mean, there's developments with China. I know you wanted to talk about Iran. The I love your media criticism always. I suspect, I predict that um, you have some thoughts on the media widely and rather incompletely reporting that the morality police have been disbanded in Iran, which is not true, really. Correct. Yeah, that that I mean, I think that that story died almost as soon as it came out. And that, and that's good. It's it's relates to this, the. What we were saying uh, last time about covering China, mm-hmm. right, covering an authoritarian slash totalitarian regime. Should not be the same as covering a Western style democracy. It's just that uh, people in our media have problems using the correct vocabulary and methods, right? So some, you know, the attorney general of Iran said something about the morality police being disbanded. He's not in charge of that. Correct. But in the West, you would just go with it right away, right? You'd say, well, it's the attorney general, right? right? And our attorney general is in charge of law enforcement, but turns out theirs isn't. And I don't think... Most reporters know that, especially over the weekend. So I'm guarantee you the weekend shift probably had to look that up. Right. And too late, seemingly. Yeah. But not by much, however. You know, this was this was corrected, I feel, rather rapidly. Sure. Uh, And listen, no matter who says it, if if an Iranian government official says we're disbanding the morality police, whether it's true or not, that's still news, especially in the context of the larger protest movement. Correct. And I think also that uh, there is some indication that the morality police is sort of off the street, right? They're not, uh, go, uh, from what I hear, many Iranian women are walking around with no hijab whatsoever. So uh, let's quickly define who the um, morality police are. It dates back to the uh, the takeover in 79 of the I think they're more Muslim- recent, actually. Uh, but I'm not sure about that. Okay. Uh, but yeah, they don't answer to, they answer to the interior ministry and not to the attorney general. And basically it's more or less, they terrorize the Iranian citizenry to make sure that they don't wear anything that is offensive to the hardline interpretation of Islam. Correct. They're often scoffed at as the fashion police. Right. (laughs) It's pretty clever. That is pretty clever. Yes. Uh, but uh, the sort of uh, hardline nature of the morality police has tended to wax and wane with 
whatever kind of government Iran has at that particular moment during periods of what they call reformist governments. Uh, the morality police has not been quite so hardline and uh, their enforcement has not been quite so draconian. During uh, more hardline governments, they tend to ramp things up. And, and Iran has a very hardline government right now. So let me uh, ask, how does that change? I thought there was just one Ayatollah and he's the supreme leader. But the well, government's changed below him. There are different the, presidents. That's correct. Yeah. Uh, and uh for instance, the previous government that uh, struck the nuclear deal was characterized as a reformist government. Now, these are relative terms, mind you, uh, but reformist governments have been more amenable to negotiating with the United States and the West more broadly, whereas hardline governments are just like, no, the West is the great Satan and we shouldn't negotiate them and we should develop nuclear weapons and we should crack down on everybody and things of that nature. So uh, the morality police during the current hardline government killed Masa Amini. And, that, and that's and, the start of this, a 22-year-old uh, Kurdish Iranian, right? Correct. Uh, and uh, we'll see how this all ends up. There's a general strike happening or it might be over by now, but there was a three-day general strike called for this week. It wasn't entirely observed by every business. Some people felt that they couldn't afford to take three days off of you know, running their shop or whatever, uh, but some people did, did observe the general strike. We'll have to see how this plays out going forward. And John, as you know, I've always been skeptical that this would lead to any real substantive change in the regime, but that doesn't mean it's for nothing. There needs to be constant resistance to all these sorts of regimes uh, for any sort of change to ever occur. And uh, this is certainly the most serious uh, uh, that we've seen in Iran in quite some time. I'm just trying to think back. Well, what would be the, the most recent kind of outpouring the of political only one that expression. I can think of during the history of the Islamic Republic that's been anywhere near that serious. And I think even more serious was 2009. Mm -hmm. And was that, that the, was, that was the precursor to the Arab Spring kind of. Correct. That was called the Green Movement. Right. Um, and that was went on for quite some time and many people were killed and it was brutally crushed and took a number of months. And so we're in something like that territory now, but we don't really have any good way of knowing how this is going to play out in the future. Any more, for, for example, than we do with what, what we discussed last week in China, right? It seems as though that's sort of petered out. And if for similar reasons, right, the authorities have relaxed some restrictions. And since the restrictions were the ignition of the protests, that at least is able to mitigate or perhaps lessen the number of people who would be inclined to protest. If the cause of the protests is reduced, then you might be able to re also reduce the intensity and protests. So this is my layman perspective about Iran that I have 
gathered totally informally from Western reporting on the Islamic Republic in my lifetime. The, the context has always been Iran was this incredibly Western, if authoritarian government, prior to the revolution in 79. Women did not have to wear hijabs. They wore miniskirts and they drove and they were in, in Tehran. In Tehran. Okay. And, right. and maybe one or two other large cities. But this was not unheard of and, in fact, widely accepted in the big city in Iranian culture. Yes. And then the revolution happens in 79. The hardliners take over. There's a huge brain drain. And I knew a bunch of kids growing up in California whose parents had immigrated. Right? I'm certain that I knew many yeah. in college as well. Totally. Um, but su- subsequent to that, or since then, the reporting has always been Iran is so young and the young people love the West. And they and, don't remember the Shah. And they don't remember the Shah, right? And so they're... And I know you you I'm using this term deliberately because I'm trying to troll you or trigger you here. But there has always been in the reporting I gather or I've observed that there's almost like an inevitability about the youth of Iran eventually bringing about some kind of reform. Is that maybe not what's actually happening, but maybe how it's always been presented or has been presented for some time in the West? That's been a very common narrative. Um, And. Honestly, I've always felt that there was a lot of wishful thinking behind that. Right. For instance, I similar saw, to China, as you and I have discussed. Sure. I once saw an interview with uh, Richard Arpage, who served in the State Department under Colin Powell and is almost a uh, zealot figure. I mean, they, for instance, he also took part in the evacuation of Vietnam. <laughs> uh, Don't hang out with that guy. Right. I mean, but he's done so many things, but apparently one of his early State Department postings was in Tehran, uh, or perhaps not in the State Department, but as some officer of the Foreign Service. And one thing Armitage said is that Iranians might be the most chauvinistically nationalistic people I've ever met. And he's met a lot of different people. Uh, And so even if young Iranians are against their own government and don't remember the Shah. That doesn't mean they suddenly want to have a love affair with America. Mm. They're still very proud of their own nation and their own national traditions and culture. Which are thousands of years old and ruled the world at one point. So it's understandable. Exactly. And so uh, there's a narrative among many I would say a large portion of the foreign policy establishment that basically everybody in the world just wants to be like us. And you mean like the U S and that's what that is. Yeah. Yeah. Like America. And in many ways that has some truth to it, but it's, I think overstated by many people and it sort of discounts agency and history and culture and many other things that just sort of would be convenient for them to get for to forget it seems uh now i if as you know i wish donald trump had never been president but 
if his presidency helps people in America understand that we might not be the universal object of envy of other nations, that wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. Uh, it wasn't that long ago that we all were starting to believe that people were alarmed by the United States, that that is people in other nations, right? And that the United States perhaps wasn't such a great example for other nations to follow. Uh, and again, that might not be the worst thing in the world, or at least for the if the idea that the United Nation, the United States was the universal model took a knock, that I think is all to the good, as long as it's not fatal to our own country, obviously, or very damaging to our own country. The situation in Iran is always, it's, I don't know why, but it seems more complicated to me when I've tried to wrap my mind around it. Than like, well, it's a very than large comparing country. It, I'm just comparing it to like China. It's like, okay, China became communist after the end of the Second World War, and uh, the United States didn't get along with communists. And so there was a natural adversarial kind of situation, a lot of nuance to it, I understand. But like Iran, and, and you sent me the, the great PBS um, episode, Taken hostage, yes. Yeah, about the, the context leading up to the 79 revolution and the hostages and everything. It's fascinating. I recommend it to anybody. It's great. Um, you know, but I don't remember. I'm not old enough to remember a time when Iran was an ally. Sure, you were a baby when the hostage crisis happened. Sure. But they, they're they not communists. They're obviously not communists. They're a hardline religious. <laughs> um, ah, okay. State, but, right? uh, that's true. But... The Iranian regime, it just structurally uh, is actually very similar to the old Soviet regime. It's a large state apparatus with many different factions inside of it and one supreme leader at the top. Uh, and so, for instance, the discussion we're There's having... There's no Politburo, though, right? No, but there is things like the Guardian Council. Uh -huh. Right. And they're the ones who decide who gets to run for president. Right. And they are a sort of that is sort of like the Politburo, actually, okay. or more like I would say the standing committee of the Politburo in China. Mm. Right. It's not the whole Politburo. It's just the ones who make all the decisions and an executive and, committee of sorts. Yes, exactly. Uh, and so, no, Iran is not communist. But the way their government is structured is very similar to how communist regimes have structured their government. Hezbollah is something that attacks Israel for the most part, right? Hezbollah didn't do 9-11. Some terrorists attached to Iran somehow, I don't recall if it was actually Hezbollah, uh, bombed a synagogue in Argentina in, I believe, the 90s. Okay. Um, but Hezbollah is- Has Hezbollah a hijacked an airliner? I don't recall. They probably have it back in the day, but I back in the day. OK, uh, but they, for instance, after uh, the uh, hostage crisis in Iran, Hezbollah was taking many hostages throughout Lebanon. Uh, and they are actually an international criminal syndicate on top of being a political party and militia inside of Lebanon. Uh, so 
Uh, his, uh, I suppose from my very provincial Western view, then they're a terrorist organization within their region more than than a threat. OK, to the but US. that's generally what terrorist organizations are. Right. Sure. I mean, the, okay. you know, the, it's only uh, with after 9-11 that we started to think about global terrorist organizations, but Hezbollah operates far outside of Lebanon. They're not just uh, a Lebanese outfit. Uh, And uh, Iran has consistently been identified by the United States as one of the chief global sponsors of terrorism. I would say that uh, Saudi Arabia is probably worse and should be recognized as such. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean Iran is uh, innocent by any stretch of the imagination, especially since they're not uh, their conventional military strength has been severely downgraded ever since the Iran Iraq war. So that was my next question. You had the Shah who built up an enormous military thanks to Western backing. He gets revolutioned out of office. Then you've got the Ayatollah who is in power for less than a year and they start an eight years long war with Iraq and no, Iraq started the war with them. Oh, what if the war happens, right? Yes. So that that's incredible, by the way. Saddam was like, I'm going to take on the hardliners, despite the fact that they have a huge military. Apparently, yes. Wow. Okay. And that was a terrible, bloody war. Terrible, like World War One level carnage, Correct. right? Like just total stalemate and meat grinding and, and awful for what, eight years? So that decimates Iran's conventional military strength. Okay. That's right. Got it. And so since then, uh, unconventional armed conflicts, terrorism and the like, are a more important way for Iran to project power, as opposed to being uh, a large conventional regional military power. One thing that I found interesting, uh, and again, it's difficult to say how it's going to play out, is the oil price cap. Oh, yes. $60 price cap on Russian oil. What what does that mean? And explain that, please. Well, the problem is I don't think anybody really knows what it means. Uh, But the, the idea is that Russian oil can still be brought to market, but only up to $60 a barrel. Greatly limiting its profitability or perhaps rendering it not profitable. Well, and that's the issue, right? Ukraine and Poland, for example, maybe one or two other countries said that's too high a price cap. They would prefer it was something more like 40 to $50. But the way it's been structured is that there's still an incentive for Russia to keep selling oil, but you reduce the amount of money they're able to make from it. I also heard an economist from Berkeley saying yesterday that the effect might not just be economic, but also geopolitical, uh, in that you might be able to bring other countries into the price cap structure uh, that might otherwise have been outside of any sort of sanctions regime you're adopting. Right. Uh, Because uh, if enough countries have a $60 cap, then even non-Western countries would say, well, why should I pay any more than, you know, they might try to negotiate 
better prices from the Russians for their oil. Now, many of them have already done so. For instance, the, the main purchaser of Russian oil right now is India. Uh, and they are thought to be getting a very good price already. And I doubt it's $60. But if I don't, I don't actually know how much they're paying. Uh, and if they're paying almost $60, they might want to try and bust that down a little bit. So that this is the idea, right? Is that if we can get more countries on board with reducing the price they pay for Russian oil, that will gradually uh, impede the Russian war machine. I do say gradually mm -hmm. because, and I think this is something that people have gotten their hopes up too much about, is that economic sanctions of any kind don't operate quickly. Uh, they take a very long time to take effect in, on the order of years. But uh, for instance, to use Iran as an, as an example, they were under sanctions for a very, very long time before they finally agreed to come to the negotiating table about their nuclear weapons program. But they did come to the table. Uh, now, that doesn't mean it's going to work for Russia, uh, but it might help uh, reduce, uh, increase the political pressure on Putin inside of Russia. It might stoke the discontent uh, that's already happening in Russia itself. It might not, but it's worth a shot to try and do it. Uh, so the problem is nobody's ever tried to do anything like this before. This is uh, a sanctions mechanism that's never been employed. So we can't, we have no previous examples to say how it might or might not work. Uh, it's, I think, worth a shot. Perhaps the price should be lower, but we're sort of operating in the dark here. I, have, I do think, though, that we should give people credit for coming up with a new form of sanctions, right? Uh, and, and say, well, here's something we've never done. Maybe it'll work. Let's give it a shot. Uh, so essentially, this sanction is trying to get everybody on the demand side to collude to Correct. not pay more than 60 bucks. It's sort of, it's a reverse, not, sorry, go it's ahead. like a reverse cartel. Sure. Right. It's, it's, instead of having a cartel of suppliers, right. right. Who set prices. Uh, let's have a cartel on the demand side saying, no, we won't pay more than this. Right. Now here's, I think I know the answer to this question, but like Russia's economy is way too centered around uh, oil revenue for them to just cut supply. And, and make everybody scared, right? That's the idea. It's a yes. bit of a gamble, right? It's a bit of a chicken. They're playing a you game know, of the, chicken. The, Russian could, Russia could just say, fine, don't have our oil world economy. See that, how that is, goes. in fact, what they're saying out loud. Right. right. But we all know that that depends on their continuing to sell lots of oil to places like India and China. Uh, Which are not small markets. They're not, but... From what I gather, but and right, I don't like know this to Germany true, and Ukraine and Poland, right? Those are also big markets. Yeah, but from from what I gather, and I have no way of knowing whether it's actually true, but the shipment mechanisms by which oil gets from Russia to China, for example, are already operating at capacity. Right? Uh -huh. Any pipelines they're using are already just churning out oil all the time, uh, and so. 
it so if they be become different. more dependent on that market, they would need to, they'd have to scale up over That's time. Right. It's they not actually, something they could just take advantage of. They, they actually can't sell oil more quickly to China than they already are, right? Uh, and I would imagine the same goes for India because they don't, uh, as far as I'm aware, there are no pipelines directly connecting Russia to India. So all that oil has to travel by sea. Uh, and uh, one of the, the points of the price cap is that, uh, Maritime insurers can't insure oil at more than $60 a barrel. Uh, and <laughs> that is and, pretty creative. Yes, that is. It is. Uh, yeah. So, again, we'll have to see how it plays out, but it is very interesting, just uh, almost as an uh, economics lab experiment, right? Uh, that's that we've never seen before. Uh, and so, you know. Uh, uh, and it will. Ha- it, we hope that it'll have actual geopolitical consequences. You know, I love that, right? It's got to go by sea, oil from Russia to India. I believe Why? that's the case. Why? Because yeah. it's hard to build a pipeline over the Himalayas. Exactly. Like I right. just everything's so digital and ephemeral, and nothing's real anymore. It feels like that in our economy and in our consumer lives. It's like well, actually, not with oil. The physical right. oil does yeah. have to be physically put on a boat and sailed physically into the Indian ocean. It is. It is priced by the barrel. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Not by the individual user of the download. That's right. Uh, <laughs> and so why isn't there a pipeline? Well, the Himalayas, are the largest mountains on earth. That's exactly. That's a good reason. Uh, and <laughs> We'll have to see what kind of effect this has going forward, but it's it's uh, it has both academic and practical interest. Let's put it that way. 